Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to cover the latest on COVID-19 data, uh, covering everything from cases to vaccines, and then we're going to use that as a framework to examine Joe Biden's latest speech where he's going to have the Labor Department issue a vaccine mandate using OSHA regulations. And then in a light item segment, George W. Bush's speech in Shanksville, Pennsylvania was pretty incredible, and I thought we could highlight that this week since everyone was focused on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So that is the agenda for this week's show. Uh, I've had some people ask me before if some of that is pre-recorded, and obviously not since I stumbled through that this week. So, you know, recording every word, even if I stumble over it sometimes. But the the show for this week, I, what I thought I would do is is go through the overall data with the pandemic right now, with COVID-19 and everything, because I find that when you're looking at things like a mandate, it's helpful to place it that mandate that Joe Biden wants to do within the context of where we are right now, just as far as cases are concerned, vaccines, and everything else. Because if you're just talking about it in generic terms... It's hard to know whether or not something is a good idea or not, and whether or not it'll actually do anything. So that's why I wanted to start out with with the data and the numbers, and then go from there. Right out of the gate, though, what I want, to, what I, I think it's worth saying at the top here, that the summer Delta surge has largely peaked and is trending lower now, and I'm I'm talking about that on a national basis. There are still flare-ups in specific. Ex- specific uh, state. So like my state of Tennessee, I think it hasn't quite plateaued yet, although it's a little hard. So what long-time listeners know, uh, when you're going through this data each week, you have to understand where your holidays hit, and holidays can inject a lot of just chaos in the overall reporting stuff. And it can take about a week for all this to work itself out, both if in the averages and in the day-to-day stuff. And so we're we're just now hitting a week mark away from the Labor Day weekend. And so a lot of the data for this past week has just been bad. You had various states reporting everything that they missed for certain days all at once, uh, some other things. So it's just been a mess. And so it just takes a little while to work through the system. But... That having been said, on a national level, trend lines suggest that the peak has been hit. We hit peak on approximately August 30th, and the peak at that point was a seven-day average in new cases of 158,000 a day. Um, this is a smaller peak than the national peak of last winter, in which we were hitting more than 250,000 a day. 
so the Delta Surge started in India initially. This is the, still the Indian strain. If you if you think back, you know we, we've they've renamed these things a couple of different times. This was colloquially known as the Indian strain. Um, they renamed it. They went with like a B numbering system, which they still use. They just don't use it in press releases and stuff. And then they switched to the Greek alphabet. So now we're at, this is Delta slash Indian. So this is when India hit its major surge. This is what was happening there, and then it's this spread out from there. Now, it, it, what you should know now is that there really is COVID nineteen and Delta are essentially synonymous. When you're talking about getting COVID, you have Delta, especially if you're in the United States. There are some people who don't have the Delta variant, but these are few and far in between. The CDC's uh, genomic monitoring service, they show that Delta currently accounts for approximately 98.9% of all cases nationally. And then every other variant fills out the rest of that percentage there. And this is kind of a variable, too. It's between 97 and 99. It is a very tight range. Um, so essentially, COVID-19 and Delta are synonymous at this point, if you're in the, especially in the United States. There are some other variants, but none of them have gotten a toehold quite the way that Delta has and has taken over. And the takeover has really been this complete since about the last two, the two last final weeks of uh, July. That's when you see Delta jump from being about a 50% to, to the 60% range to jumping above 75 and 80% and really dominating the, the caseloads nationally. So that's sort of where we are. This is the Delta surge. There is nothing else at this stage. Nothing else has eaten into the overall case count from Delta. And I'm, I'm skipping talking. I'm starting here really a little bit lower from where I usually do, where I would talk through testing. I'm skipping any talk about testing because there's so much problems right now with how testing is being done. There are shortages of tests. If you if you you may know this because if you've gone out and tried to get a test lately, it's it's impossible to do. Um, they are sold out everywhere. Uh, you can get PCR tests online on places like Amazon. I think you can find some other similar places if you're you're hitting up a Walgreens or someplace like that. But by and large, everywhere else, things are just sold out. The the quick tests, the PCR tests, and everything. And so we have a shortage. Um, that's due for a variety of reasons. That's probably a whole podcast by itself why there's so, the shortage here. But the the other thing that's happening here in the testing stuff is that there are a lot of people taking these at-home rapid tests, and none of the rapid tests get reported. So I was reading a story in the Wall Street Journal on this point, and biomedical diagnostic the bio the biomedical diagnostics program at Arizona State University estimates that about eight hundred thousand rapid antigen tests are conducted every day. So eight hundred thousand a day are done, and then they are not counted in your official totals. So you remember there was there was a while there where I was talking about how testing overall had fallen to around 1, 1.2 million. And during the winter, we were doing around 2 million. Uh, this is really where that missing 800,000 is, 800,000 to a million tests a day. They've gone into the private markets where people are doing them at home, which is fine. You want these things easy to get. But a rapid test is not going to be reported in the overall test for the day. 
the only thing being reported on things like that is if you get an antigen test with a place that reports it or you're doing one of the PCR tests that you have to send in. So we are flying kind of blind here because we don't know the daily results of those 800,000 tests. Now, I would imagine the bulk of those are going to be negative just because that's the way a lot of the, the PCR tests are right now. But that is still a pretty big hole in how we are understanding how many positives we have. So this is not a clean way to know exactly how many cases we are. We know from the PCR level, for the most part, that cases are trending down and that they peaked a few weeks ago. So it is likely the same thing is happening on this antigen level tests. But it's also likely we're missing a lot of positive cases within those quick, rapid tests as well. So... That's something to keep in mind here when you're hearing people talk about the number of cases that we've had and things like that. And I've suggested in the past that I think that there are far more cases that there exist right now just because of how prevalent Delta is. And I think having learned about how many tests that are being done on the at-home basis, that that is definitely true. You have a lot of cases that are going unreported. Just because people take the test, they learn about it, and they may quarantine. They may tell another person that they have it, but that is not going to go into your official CDC statistics. So that's why, really, with the the Delta surge, I have switched almost exclusively to looking at hospitalizations because since we have vaccinations in the wild now, it is important to see how well the healthcare system is holding up. And hospitalizations, as a metric here, appear to have peaked as well. So the Delta summer peak of COVID peaked around the same time that cases did, and hospitalizations appeared to have peaked at around 93 to 95,000. That number is now at 89,000, so it's drifted down a little bit, and it looks like it's going to slowly drop from there and start uh, de-accelerating here and going down. Um, Obviously, you don't know how far it's going to go down, but this is a good thing that we're seeing hospitalizations drop. So that lag in the data that you always know exists, it, it appears like that has caught up a little bit here. And so we have hospitalizations that have peaked. They probably peaked about five to seven days later after that August 30 case peak. And now they are going down. Um, deaths are a little bit harder to read at the moment. And these have really, really been impacted. Deaths are always impacted by holidays and the long holiday weekends are even worse on this this sort of thing. So it looked like, on a, I think on a daily surge, if you looked across at some of the holiday stuff, there are these massive surges and deaths across the past week. And that really didn't take place. A lot of this were states that just didn't report anything over the weekend. And so then you have three, sometimes even up to five days. I think even some states reporting up to a week of stuff all in one shot. So you have to be careful around holidays when you're looking at some of these metrics. Um, but it appears, uh, even with some of the, the funky numbers in the deaths range here, that the the seven-day average on deaths has also started to decline. It looks like those peaked as well. Um, we're talking peaking at around twelve to 1,300 a day, and they've started to go down from there. Um, this this twelve to 1,300 range obviously is awful, but it is also much improved from the winter surge, where the seven-day peak was at about 3,600 deaths a day with with single-day highs going well north of 4,000 deaths in a single shot. So just, it, it, it's a dramatic improvement from where we were in the winter. I think we've had a ton of cases of Delta. It has not been anywhere near 
as lethal as the winter surge. And that is a good thing. Um, I think Delta has been very widespread, probably even more widespread than anything we've seen. But the, the, the mortality rate has been much lessened. And I think when you're looking at that, I think especially with who was most impacted last winter and just last year in general, you have to say that vaccinations are the reason for that. We've administered 380 million doses of the vaccine in America. 63% of the population has had at least one shot, and 53.8% of the population is fully vaccinated. So fully vaccinated is two shots or a one-shot Johnson & Johnson. And the reason that I can say vaccines have kept deaths down is because the oldest part of the population, those 65 and above, are the most vaccinated part of the population. So currently, 92.8% of that cohort is partially vaccinated with at least one shot. 82.5% of that population is fully vaccinated. Obviously, every percentage point we gain from that group is going to help. But when you're talking about the deaths that are coming out of that range, they are going to be focused in that, you know, that 17 to 18% there that is not vaccinated or that, that 8% that has no vaccination at all. That's really where you're seeing these deaths, the, the severe cases come from. When you're talking about a country the size of the United States, 7 to 8% of the population with 360 million is a lot of people, and that can lead to a lot of deaths. So... COVID has been particularly lethal for this cohort, and the death numbers having decreased in this surge, which was nearly on the level of the winter surge in terms of cases, but it's been well below those death numbers. So it's been good to see that vaccinations have helped tamp down what we're seeing here. Um, that's not to say that tragic things aren't occurring. They, they obviously are. But just comparing surge to surge, this has been f- less on just on a mortality and even hospitalizations basis, it's been less than the winter surge. And we're in the summer. Uh, you you don't want your summer surge to be on par with the winter surge, but it appears that we've had these these we we're the two year pattern here is that you have a peak in the summer and the winter, and there may also be a spring surge in some of these northern states. So that's sort of what we've seen so far. Um, the other thing, obviously, is that with the the older parts of the country more vaccinated, that means the share of these cases have shifted into lower age ranges. And so some of the stories that you're seeing coming out of here, the people who are dying from this are just utterly and completely tragic. I know I was reading one today of a family where the mother and father died and they left behind five children, all young. And so the extended family got to take care of them because the mother and father died from COVID-19 and they were unvaccinated. And so those kinds of stories are more prevalent in this just because the kind of person who is getting it has shifted mostly out of that older cohort there. Obviously, every death is is tragic. I'm not trying to belittle any of these, but some of these just truly are heartbreaking when you read some of them. So that's why it's important for all age cohorts truly to get vaccinated here because as this virus is mutating and you see some of these different variants, it starts impacting some of these different age groups differently. And so it's best to have that protection there because it leaves you out of those hospitalization and death categories. So aside from that, 65% of the adult population now is overall, um, has is 65% of the popula- of adult population is fully vaccinated. Great numbers there. And 75% is at least partially vaccinated. 
And I think it's important to note those numbers because when you're talking about the mandate, which we're going to get up to here, you're talking about that part of the population. Because a mandate, particularly one that comes down from the Labor Department, does not impact kids. But that's sort of the data there, um, sort of your overview. The vaccinations are doing well right now. We've seen them climb a little bit here, you know, your new daily vaccination rates, but there's still a lot of room to improve. Um, so that brings us to the end of the data portion, um, and that sort of, I think, sets the stage really well for where we are. So we are, we have started the end of the Delta summer surge. We're now heading into the fall. There is on the horizon, we know at some point, likely a winter surge here, but the the summer Delta surge is now ending. It's a question now of how long this thing takes to bottom back out. Maybe we can get towards some of those lows of the spring and early summer that we saw as vaccinations started taking hold. Um, but it's obvious, looking from at this data and data internationally, that the only way to get this thing to become an endemic and is to get people more and more people vaccinated. We need to make this thing like the flu to ensure, and that the only way you get it to become like the flu is to get more and more people vaccinated. So you have both a vaccinated community and a natural immunity community that combine to give you a really good firewall, firewall or herd immunity set here that prevents this thing from being able to spread quite as easily. We are obviously getting there. The thing is, with Delta, is that it has just been far more viral. So it has found those communities of unvaccinated people far easier than you would have expected with another disease. So we started going after, like the original Salk vaccine, it had an efficacy rate of around 60 to 70 percent. We've improved that into the 90s range now. But the initial one was only about 60 to 70 percent, and that was good enough to effectively create a herd immunity among kids where you didn't have to worry about community spread quite as much with that. Delta is proving to be a different animal in that it has been far more viral. Now, there was the initial story early on where the New York Times reported that this thing was like the chicken pox. That turns out to not been totally true. It is definitely more viral than the flu. It's not as viral as the chicken pox. It's somewhere in that range, though, where you're talking something that, that can get around really, really easily. And so the only way to blunt the spread of this is to have it run into the vaccinated communities and people with natural immunity. And just frankly, you don't want to get this thing just because you're rolling the dice on something going wrong here. So it's always better to have that, that vaccination kicking around. If you were sick a while ago, you know, a good chunk a while ago, um, or you, you know, I think you have to kind of treat the, the vaccines to be kind of like a booster shot. You want your body to say, okay, I've got this natural immunity. I don't want my body to stop producing those antibodies. So we're going to kick this vaccine in and keep those antibodies up. I think that's kind of how you have to think about that. Cause that's kind of how I'm thinking about that. I was, I was having breakfast with a friend recently and we got to talking about this and my, my general plan here is to sort of, because I'm fully vaccinated. I got fully vaccinated in April, so I'm looking at this potential booster shot situation because I have the Pfizer shot. I know people with Moderna. So kind of looking at this, and I don't really feel like I've, you know, I'm not concerned that I've lost any immunity based on what I've read on this. 
The key with the booster shots is making sure that you have active antibodies in your system so your body isn't relying on the memory cells to try to catch up if you get it. You want to have them running and kicking, especially during these surge periods. Um, If you're looking at a time when nothing's really happening, then, you know, you may not really care about as much, you know, what you're encountering on a day-to-day basis. But during these surge periods where you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people getting it in a day and probably more because we only have these antigen tests, it's better to have these active antibodies kicking around in your system. And so that's why I think these vaccines are so helpful because it makes sure and allows you to do that. And my general plan at the moment is to, you know, maybe get one of the, the, the antibody tests, see where I am on that front, and then make my decision from there. If I've still got active antibodies, then I can push one the push the the booster shot down the road a little bit because kind of will be able to use that more a little closer to the what I'm expecting to be the winter surge, and then you can kind of go from there. I've got friends who had COVID nineteen. And they had it last year. And you're sort of talking about sort of the same thing. It's like, you know you have it. You know you have that natural immunity. The question is, can you boost that and keep your antibodies kicking around, you know, for now, a year later? And, you know, you've got these vaccines here. They're free. It's a pretty good option to have there. So that's why I think this is a good thing for everybody to chase down and just look at just because it keeps you protected. This is sort of like your insurance policy. It is a free insurance policy. And when you're thinking about it on that front, I think it makes the choice a little bit easier to make because you're just trying to say, okay, I don't know what this thing is going to do, but my best shot is to do this. It's not to wear a mask. It's not to wash my hands. It's to crank my immunity system up and have it ready to fight this thing because we're all going to encounter it. So that's why I would say to most people, yes, you do need to look at getting it. Are there exceptions to that rule? Of course. The people who are exceptions have probably talked to a doctor who have told them one thing or another about their immunity system, and they, you know, they're making that decision. Those exceptions are few and far between, though. I've seen and heard of them, and know people who, some people who have them, but you're talking about a vanishingly small percentage of the population that actually has that. So the better choice of here is to get that insurance policy. And the reason I'm talking about this is that there, I, was, I realized as I was looking through this data and sort of reading up on some things this week that there were two things that I was wrong about in analyzing both the pandemic overall and Delta really specifically with this specific surge. Um, first, I guess we can start with Delta. I assumed that the Delta surge would peak by the second week of August or so. And the reason I thought that is that I looked at the prior surge from last year. And when you looked at sort of just sort of a timeline and what you expected and how things sort of played out with that when we were kind of following a similar pattern. And Delta did not follow that pattern. It went on about three weeks longer than I anticipated on that front. I was expecting about that second week for it to peak. It peaks at the end of the month. It's about three weeks there. So it lasted considerably longer than I anticipated. And that three, those three weeks there, those are the really the key ones where we saw hospitalizations skyrocket. So Delta was just far more pervasive than I initially thought it was going to be. And as I said at the top, I don't believe the case numbers for the surge. I suspect Delta actually had case numbers that were far closer to the winter surge numbers 
It's just that with vaccinations, we were able to keep hospitalizations lower than that winter surge. Because during that winter surge, we had nothing. That We were just at the mercy of that thing and waiting for it to go down. And then at the end of December, we really did start to see vaccinations start to roll out to targeted communities. So, I, you know, I think we're missing a lot of the numbers here. That's why I'm not focused on testing anymore. I think testing is great. Obviously, if you want to know something, you've got to go get one of these tests. But as far as giving us information about what's happening in our country, testing is almost irrelevant at this point. You have to look at your hospitalizations and deaths to know exactly what's happening. So there are a lot of holes in our ability to look out and see what we know. And so you kind of have to fill in the, in the voids from there. So I, that's the first thing that I think that I was wrong about. Delta, Delta was far worse than I anticipated just on a length of time. I anticipated a surge here just because this is a seasonal disease. And I think that's actually partially, if you want to look at Australia, that's probably what's happening to them too. If you kind of look at when the surge is happening, this is their winter time. They're in that southern hemisphere. They're coming out of that period of time. This is, you know, if this was our, you know, January, February time, we would be seeing big case numbers too. This is sort of like that for them. And so I think you're seeing sort of a similar dynamic there where the seasonality of this plays a massive part of what you're seeing. That's why you're seeing New Zealand struggle with this thing. Um, we have our late summer thing. This is what we did last year. It's just been far worse. And so my concern looking at this and how I was wrong with that is that it's going to take a little bit longer for the summer surge to, to ramp down, which is not really good because we're immediately going to hit fall here. And... The fall surge began late October-ish, early November range, and it ramped up from there. And you didn't see it come down until the end of until the you know that first to second week of January. So you're talking about November and December where things just skyrocketed. That's two solid months there, and people were indoors. That's the thing about this seasonality play. The reason it plays into it is you have people indoors, and the more people indoors, the easier this thing spreads. So that's the first thing. Delta was bad. Are we going to see this the same thing in the winter? I don't know. No variant has stepped up to the plate and said that it would take, that, you know, it's going to be the thing that takes over for this, for this winter surge. It may just be another Delta thing. Um, that would be good. We would likely have more, more immunity to a Delta surge. Um, but it is still not outside the realm of possibility that you see a new variant pop out. In fact, I've, I've kind of been surprised that Delta hasn't spawned something here in the United States, because that's typically what happens. You know, originally we had things like the UK strain or the South African strain, and those would spread a little bit, and they would go out, and then a new thing would form that would bounce off something that they did or would form out of something out of India. And we haven't seen that in the United States, at least so far in the CDC's data. Now, I know in the media they're reporting things like the Mu variant and some of these others, but those really haven't shown a capacity to grow in the overall population of things. They could be showing up in some of these 800,000 tests that we don't know what the results are, uh, but we would also, you would think, see some of this in the PCR tests that go to a lab, and it hasn't really shown up so far. So that's... My big concern for this winter is that we would get a new variant that would change how we view this thing. It hasn't happened so far, but it's still not outside the realm of possibility that that does happen. Particularly in one of these cases, one of these states, you know, your Tennessees, Alabamas, 
who are hot with the virus right now, you could see them spawn something that would go out for the rest of the country. So I, the second thing I was wrong about, though, and this is something that I, I, thought, I thought for a while, particularly early on, just because I was looking at data about SARS and some of these early cases, and it was that it was the question of whether or not you could get COVID-19 multiple times. There's now too many stories and cases that show that you can get COVID multiple times, although I think what's happening here is you're getting different variants of it, more than likely. But that means that vaccinations and natural immunity are now the only way to beat this thing long-term, particularly on an individual level, because if you can get it multiple times, and you've got to have, you've got to have some kind of boost there to help you out. Because it's, if it's like the flu, then, we, and then you know, anybody can get the flu on a yearly basis, then you've got to have... That flu shot is nice to have because it's going to protect you from the worst that the flus can throw at you. So that that's the second thing. It's this multiple cases deal which here, which is it, it's bad by itself, but what it really tells you is this. If the person can get it multiple times, there is no such thing as a COVID zero world. And if there's no such thing as a COVID zero world, then it's just a matter of ensuring that everyone is prepared for when they get it, not if they get it. Because at this stage, you just know everyone's going to get it. Just like you're pretty sure someone in their life is going to get the flu at some point. You're going to be exposed to somebody who has it. That's why you offer the shot to everyone. Now, most people do recover. The problem is that we can't deal with people getting sick and overwhelming the hospitals. And so the question is here, if you can't have a COVID zero world, how can you keep the healthcare system standing upright the only answer that we have right now is vaccines. We're obviously getting better treatments, but vaccines are the key to in keeping people out of the hospitals to begin with. The hospitals have access to much better treatment, but you really don't want COVID patients going there to begin with because it prevents other procedures from taking place. So all of this now brings me to Joe Biden's mandate. So my Monday Conservative Column Institute and the newsletter from Friday, this past Friday, um, this upcoming, you know, I'm recording late Sunday, so Monday, tomorrow's uh, column that I sent off to my editors earlier today, they're covering more of the legal things that are that, are, that could arise with this mandate. I'm not going to cover them here on the podcast just because that would be the third time for me. I don't really want to go through it again. Um, but the thing about this mandate, though, is... The big question for me is, is why? Why are we doing this mandate? The mandate's obviously not here to stop or put a dent in the Delta wave. That thing's going down now. And that's been apparent since at least the first of the month, where things have been going down. Um... The other thing about this mandate is that it's an extreme about-face for the administration. They did not say or believe that we needed a mandate until really this past week. This thing came out of left field. I wasn't expecting it. No one was really expecting it. Um, Robbie Suave at Reason Magazine, he made an excellent point on this front. He kind of did a quick documentation in a blog post. He said, Right up until the, the moment that he declared all large private employers in the country would be forced to require COVID-19 vaccinations, President Joe Biden consistently opposed COVID-19 mandates. And he was not alone. Speaking in her capacity as an official White House, uh, White House spokesperson, Press Secretary Jen Psaki explicitly stated, quote, that's not the role of the federal government. 
Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, also said there'd be no mandate. On December the 4th, 2020, Joe Biden said the vaccine would not be imposed by a mandate. Quote, no, I don't think it should be mandatory, he said. I wouldn't demand it be mandatory. Psaki's comments came even more recently, on July 23rd, 2021. Quote, that's not the role of the federal government, she said, when asked about such mandates. Quote, that's the role of that of, uh, that's the role of institutions, private sectors, entities, and others may take. A week later, on July 31st, the CDC head corrected a comment that she had made that some interpreted as being supportive of a federal mandate. Quote, there will be no nationwide mandate, she said. I was referring to mandates by private institutions and portions of the federal government. There will be no federal mandate. So up until this past week, the Biden administration was all united on this front. that There was not going to be a mandate. And, and that's kind of, it, it's, it's just interesting to look at that. So, and the other thing here is that until this past week, Joe Biden wasn't alone on this front. Uh, every state in the union, every, every red state, blue state, purple state, all of them, none of them have been interested in putting in place a mandate of any kind. And this is a point that I've made several times now, but every state, every state in the country has the legal authority under the Constitution, and this has already been blessed by the Supreme Court, to order mandatory vaccinations. And I do mean mandatory on this front, not, you know, hinged on job status or anything else. These are actual mandates where you get vaccinated or you face fines or jail time, period. Get this vaccine or we will fine you or throw you in jail. The end. That kind of law was upheld in 1905. Every single state governor, every single state legislature has this power at their disposal. And I know there are a lot of libertarian types who may listen to this or conservative types who listen to this and say, well, no, the government can't force you to do anything. And that is not true. If they are a state government, they have the police power, and this is explicitly spelled out in the federal constitution, and a lot of these state, state, you know, states have it in their constitution too, that the states have both public health and police power. They can mandate this thing, particularly in a pandemic. I actually do not know the full limits of state power in the middle of a pandemic. Now, you can say, well, that's not good. And, you know, I I may agree with you on some of those things, but I know for a fact, legally, that these states have this power. What has not happened is they've all refused to use it, which is fascinating because in in the previous age, particularly if you go back before we haven't really had a major pandemic I mean, AIDS was the first one for a while. We haven't we haven't had a you know a vaccine per se for that. But if you go back into the '60s and before, and really any era before that, these states were mandating these sort of things all the time. And it's not the same thing as a you know vaccination. Get your vaccinations, or you can't attend school. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about get a vaccine, or we're going to throw you in jail. Get a vaccine, or we're going to fine you money. That's the kind of power that these states actually have, and none of them have used it. And it's, it, I keep saying it's interesting because it really is, because it tells you, it tells you a, a lot of things, both politically and from a vaccination point rollout here. Um, politically, what it tells you is that 
Um, none of these states, not, not a single Democrat, not a single Republican, not an not independent, not anyone who falls in any of these parties, not one of them believes that it's politically viable to do one of these van- mandates. They think they will be punished politically if they do one of these mandates. I happen to think they're right. I think they have the right read on this, but they do believe that. I think it's interesting that Democrats believe this. I think it's interesting that uh, no Republicans believe this. Because Hawaii right now, there have been times in Hawaii's history where they only have one elected Republican in their entire state legislature, and that Republican has to sit on all the committees because according to their rules, you have to have even representation for both parties, and if there's only one Republican, he's got to be everywhere. Um, A state like Hawaii is not going to do something like this. They're not going to go around and mandate people get the vaccine, which is fascinating. The bluest of blue states... Gavin Newsom, in the middle of a recall, is not going to do this. Andrew Cuomo, at the height of his corrupt power, not going to do that. None of the northeastern states is going to do this. Obviously, none of the red states are going to do this. I know why that's not going to happen. But not even up in the northwest when you've got you know the craziness happening up in Washington and Oregon. No one believes it's in their political best interest to do this. And until this past week... Joe Biden was in that category, as was everyone else in the White House. So something's changed here where, you know, they've changed their mind on that point. But the other thing here is that they don't appear to believe that these mandates help push the hesitant into, the vaccine hesitant into the actual vaccinated category. No one believes it's going to help them politically, and no one believes it's actually going to help them find the unvaccinated and move them across the table. It's just going to, in fact, everyone seems to believe the opposite. It's going to entrench people and make them oppose it. And yet, you know, here we are. Here we are where Joe Biden is the one politician here who is going ahead to do this. And it makes very little sense when you're trying to piece together what he said here, because it just doesn't make any sense, because there's no really political argument for it, and I don't think there's a statistical argument for it either. The best argument that you can make for Biden is that this mandate is about the winter surge, which everyone anticipates is coming, at least all the experts, people like me, we're on agreement on this one. A winter surge is coming. And if the winter surge is as bad as the previous one, which is possible, then a mandate does make some level of sense because you're not you're trying to you know build that firewall to prevent that winter surge from being as bad as it is. That's why you would mandate it now to cut this off at the pass, trying to prevent your healthcare system from getting overwhelmed from November to February. That case makes sense for me. If that was the case that he was making, I would totally understand it. But it is not the case that they're making. They're making their case on basing, on easing the fears of the vaccinated. And I'm going to give you two quotes here because I, this is from his speech. So the first one is this. Joe Biden said this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it's caused by the fact that despite America having an unprecedented and successful vaccination program, which he didn't do, by the way, that's all Operation Warp Speed, despite the fact that for almost five months, free vaccines have been available for 80,000 different locations, we still have nearly 80 million Americans who have failed to get the shot. That part is right. 
That is a factual statement. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. 99, between, you know, 95 and 99% of all your hospitalization cases are the unvaccinated. The deaths are even more outright. The people who are dying from this are the people who are refusing to get vaccinated. Period. End of story. The second quote he gives, though, undermines that first one. So this is where he announces the mandate. He says, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Skipping down a little bit. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. We're going to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in business across America. Protecting vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers makes utterly no sense in the world. That is a factually false statement. The vaccinated are protected by their vaccines. The unvaccinated people are protected by the people that pe- are protected by the fact that people have vaccines. The only people getting this now, or at least getting this in a serious re- way that you know hurts the healthcare system, are the unvaccinated. But you can't say in one breath that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and then say that the mandate is to protect the vaccinated. The mandate is to protect the unvaccinated. That's the point of a mandate. You're going after these people to get them the shot in order to get them out of these risk categories. The reasoning that the White House is putting forth here makes utterly no sense. And, they, you know, they have other things they say here, but this is the one that stood out. This is the one that's gone viral. They should have known this would go viral because it's a dumb line. It's not something that, that Biden even ad lib. This is something that was in his speech. They okayed this for him to say. And it makes no sense. And instead of depolarizing the situation by saying it this way, Biden is enhancing polarization by declaring two different groups and saying that we have to protect them from each other, which still makes no sense at all. This is about going and getting the unvaccinated, making them vaccinated, and getting them out of that category so that they're no longer a threat to themselves or to the healthcare system. That's the argument they need to be making. That is the argument that they are not making. And again, the messaging on this makes no sense at all whatsoever. So my parting shot on this wrap up here is that I'm watching one metric as we're moving forward here and I'm watching it really hard and that is the number of people getting vaccinated on a daily basis and the trend lines surrounding that. So far, the Johnson & Johnson pause destroyed the vaccination rollout in America. That is something that Biden has not taken has not taken any responsibility for, even though it is his administration that destroyed the vaccine rollout by allowing that Johnson & Johnson pause to go forth. I've ranted and raved about this on the on this podcast a number of times. I'm not going to do it again, even though I could probably fill an hour where I just go off unhinged on it. In any event, the vaccine rollout had started to turn around recently. The day the Johnson & Johnson paused happened in April, we were averaging around 3.3 million vaccinations a day. After the Johnson & Johnson pause, the vaccination rollout bottomed out in July at about 500,000 shots a day. On September the 3rd, the seven-day average of vac- on vaccinations had recovered, and we were nearing nearly a million a day in the seven-day averages. They were sitting right around 950,000. So that, that is a major recovery there. It's great and fantastic news. Things were headed in the right direction. But what it remains to be seen is if Biden's speech will impact that recovery. 
So the seven-day average has dipped, and it's dipped back down to 750,000. I think that's more of Labor Day noise happening in that. I think we'll find out this next week where the numbers really are. Um, I also think there's some them issues here with Hurricane Ida. I think with it hitting just a broad swath of the country, I think you just you have a reduced number of of reporting happening there. And this happened with snowstorms back in the winter. I expect weather impacts here. I think that's what's happening here. So I don't think the dip that we're seeing right now from 950 to 750,000 is due to anything other than weather and basic and the and the holiday. But my concern here is that Joe Biden's speech is going to harden people against the vaccine because they're going to say, I refuse to get anything government mandates me to get. I've already seen people doing that. It's not a good thing. But it is what I'm seeing, where people who were at one point coming around on the vaccine have now seen this mandate and said, no, the government's mandating it. I'm not going to do it. I've also seen people claim that this is fascism. This is this is not fascism. Please cool those talking points. A, a mandate to get a vaccine. I don't particularly think the federal government has this power. I know the states do. That is not fascism. Public health powers were built into the Constitution a long time ago, in the founding era. They all agreed the states had this power. All of the states... The federal government included. Every last single one of them had studied plague eras going back into Europe. They all believed that the governments had a role in this. This is not fascism. Is it an overstep? Yes, more than likely, because we're talking about OSHA making people do something. That is something that I'm not quite sure that they have the capacity to do, although we will see on that point. The actual, you know, grotesque power overstep was the CDC saying that they could interfere with eviction moratoriums, which they never had the power to do. Um, But that's a, a, a debate for another day. This is not fascism. This is a questionable use of power here. But it is something that governments have at different levels. They definitely have it. So the bad point here is I think this is going to harden people against getting a vaccine at all. It's something I've seen, something other reporting. I'm hoping that this is not another Johnson & Johnson pause situation. But if this does happen, then Joe Biden, this is going to be a second point here where Joe Biden has directly harmed the vaccination rollout. He didn't stop the the Johnson & Johnson pause, and he's going to harden people against the vaccinations here, I think. And so if the seven-day averages continue to dip, you can blame that on Joe Biden. And that will be worse than anything. I think, you know, harming the voluntary people voluntarily getting the vaccinations is far worse than trying to ram something through OSHA that may or may not stand. Because then you're trying to ram through something people don't think they want to get anymore. So he is potentially undermining trust in vaccines here, and that is probably the worst part about this. So I, I hope that it doesn't take place, but I suspect that it may. That's all the points I've got on that. The light item this week comes from the ceremony surrounding the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Over the weekend, I watched a lot of the ceremonies there. The biggest speech was uh, George W. Bush's in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where United Flight 93 went down in a field from the heroism of passengers like Ty Beamer. And Bush's speech was just a very nice tribute to that moment and everything since then. 
Uh, predictably, though, members of the right and left were outraged at this speech because they're all morons. Um, but here is the speech, though. I thought it was a great speech, and I thought it encapsulated everything really well. 20 years ago, we all found in different ways, in different places, but all at the same moment, that our lives would be changed forever. The world was loud with carnage and sirens, and then quiet with missing voices that would never be heard again. These lives remain precious to our country and infinitely precious to many of you. Today we remember your loss, we share your sorrow, and we honor the men and women you have loved so long and so well. For those too young to recall that clear September day, it is hard to describe the mix of feelings we experienced. There was horror at the scale, there was horror at the scale of destruction and awe at the bravery and kindness that rose to meet it. There was shock at the audacity, audacity of evil and gratitude for the heroism and decency that opposed it. In the sacrifice of the first responders, in the mutual aid of strangers, in the solidarity of grief and grace, the actions of an enemy revealed the spirit of a people. And we were proud of our wounded nation. In these memories, the passengers and crew of Flight 93 must always have an honored place. Here, the intended targets became the instruments of rescue. And many who are now alive owe a vast unconscious debt to the defiance displayed in the skies above this field. It would be a mistake to idealize the experience of those terrible events. All that many people could initially see was the brute randomness of death. All that many could feel was unearned suffering. All that many could hear was God's terrible silence. There are many who still struggle with a lonely pain that cuts deep within. In those fateful hours, we learned other lessons as well. We saw that Americans were vulnerable, but not fragile. That they possess a core of strength that survives the worst that life can bring. We learned that bravery is more common than we imagined, emerging with sudden splendor in the face of death. We vividly felt how every hour with our loved ones was a temporary and holy gift. And we found that even the longest days end. Many of us have tried to make spiritual sense of these events. There is no simple explanation for the mix of providence and human will that sets the direction of our lives. But comfort can come from a different sort of knowledge. After wandering long and lost in the dark, many have found they were actually walking step by step toward grace. As a nation, our adjustments have been profound. Many Americans struggled to understand why an enemy would hate us with such zeal. The security measures incorporated into our lives are both sources of comfort 
and reminders of our vulnerability. And we have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdainful pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. After 9-11, millions of brave Americans stepped forward and volunteered to serve in the armed forces. The military measures taken over the last 20 years to pursue dangers at their source have led to debate. But one thing is certain. We owe an assurance to all who have fought our nation's most recent battles. Let me speak directly to veterans and people in uniform. The cause you pursued at the call of duty is the noblest America has to offer. You have shielded your fellow citizens from danger. You have defended the beliefs of your country and advanced the rights of the downtrodden. You have been the face of hope and mercy in dark places. You have been a force for good in the world. Nothing that has followed, nothing can tarnish your honor or diminish your accomplishments. To you and to the honored dead, our country is forever grateful. In the weeks and months following the 9-11 attacks, I was proud to lead an amazing, resilient, united people. When it comes to the unity of America, those days seem distant from our own. Malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of cultures. So much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. I come without explanations or solutions. I can only tell you what I've seen. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. At a time when religious bigotry might have flowed freely, I saw Americans reject prejudice and embrace people of Muslim faith. That is the nation I know. At a time when nativism could have stirred hatred and violence against people perceived as outsiders, I saw Americans reaffirm their welcome to immigrants and refugees. That is the nation I know. At a time when some viewed the rising generation as individualistic and decadent, I saw young people embrace an ethic of service and rise to selfless action. That is the nation I know. This is not mere nostalgia. 
It is the truest version of ourselves. It is what we have been and what we can be again. 20 years ago, terrorists chose a random group of Americans on a routine flight to be collateral damage in a spectacular act of terror. The 33 passengers and seven crew of Flight 93 could have been any group of citizens selected by fate. In a sense, they stood in for us all. The terrorists soon discovered that a random group of Americans is an exceptional group of people facing an impossible circumstance. They comforted their loved ones by phone, braced each other for action, and defeated the designs of evil. These Americans were brave, strong, and united in ways that shocked the terrorists, but should not surprise any of us. This is the nation we know. And whenever we need hope and inspiration, we can look to the skies and remember. God bless. So there's George W. Bush's speech. I thought it was great. It was good for me anyway. I was sitting here just thinking about it. That It was just good to hear a president that cared. And I realized, as I was listening to it, that it had been a while since I'd heard that kind of thing, where a president actually cared about the Americans that he was leading. And that's something that I would like to see return again. But right now, we definitely do not have it, particularly after watching what happened in Afghanistan. So would like to get that back someday. And I think that was a great speech. So that's all I've got today, though. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next column on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. Make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode. 